Remain standing, if you would, and take your Bibles and turn to Mark's Gospel as we continue to work our way through this wonderful book. Mark chapter 6, we'll be getting today. Uh, Hear now God's Word. He, that is Jesus, went away from there and came to his hometown, and his disciples followed him. And on the Sabbath he began to teach in the synagogue, and many who heard him were astonished, saying, Where did this man get these things? What is the wisdom given to him? How are such mighty works done by his hands? Is not this the carpenter, the son of Mary, and the brother of James, and Joseph, and Judas, and Simeon? And are not his sisters here with us? And they took offense at him. And Jesus said to them, A prophet is not without honor except in his hometown, among his relatives in his own household. And he could do no mighty work there, except that he laid his hands on a few sick people and healed them, and he marveled because of their unbelief. Amen. You may be seated. Father, we thank you so much for the word that you have given to us this morning. We know that the grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our God will stand forever. And Lord, we pray that this word would bear greatly upon our hearts today as we consider the things that, that you are speaking to us today. We thank you and pray this in your name. Amen. Well, as, as Christians, uh, we talk a lot about faith. We even actually talked about that in the adult Sunday school class a little bit this morning. And uh, it's not uncommon for Christians to talk about the need of faith in Jesus Christ and, and the power of faith as well. Uh, Jesus says in, in Matthew's Gospel that if you have faith as a mustard seed, just tiny little, that you can say to this mountain, move, and it will move and, and go wherever uh, it should go. But of course, as we, we think about those things, we need to understand that faith itself has no power to do anything. It is the one in whom we place our faith that can do whatever it is that he wills and he desires. And of course, for the, the Christian, you know, as in any aspect of faith, there, there is this object, there is something or someone and for the Christian that is Jesus Christ in which they place their faith. And so it is the object of faith that makes things happen. So when the Bible calls us to have faith, it's really to trust in Christ that he can do all that he promises to do. And so for the the Christian, faith is very, very, very important. But have you ever thought about the opposite? Not the power of faith, but really the power of unbelief. It was unbelief that brought curse on all of humanity. It was unbelief that brought down the rain from heaven that drowned the entire human race except for Noah and his family. It was unbelief in the Son of God that catapults people into eternal hell. And so there is great power in an unbelief as well. But all throughout Mark's Gospel, and particularly in chapter 5 that we've been looking at, we see faith at work. And really, in one sense, I guess you could say in chapter 5, we see faith triumphing. In the case of the the demoniac man, the the man that was filled with demons, 
He was set free by Jesus Christ as he comes to him and he falls at Jesus' feet. The woman who touched Jesus' garment, you know, she had faith and, and he healed her. Jairus, who took uh, to heart Jesus' admonition, fear not, but only believe, did. Even when he thought he was coming to Jesus to have his daughter healed, but instead he found out he had to, to believe that he could heal her from the dead. Now, of course, in chapter 5, where there were those who doubted. There were the people in the region of the demoniac that, that wanted Jesus to go away. They didn't want him around there. And, of course, the mourners in Jairus' house and stuff. Uh, but, for the most part, we see faith at work in, in Mark chapter 5. But as we come to Mark chapter 6, if, if Mark 5 could be called the faith chapter, Mark 6 would be called the no-faith chapter, or, or the chapter of unbelief, I think you could say. Because we, we first of all look at uh, Jesus' hometown and their view of Christ and their unbelief in him. We see even as Jesus sends out the disciples to go and to proclaim the gospel, uh, he warns of those who will not believe the message in verse 11. And he says, when that happens, just shake the dust off and, and move on. And then even Herod in verse 16 of chapter 6, you know, when when he's considering who Christ is, doesn't really see him as the Messiah, the Son of God, but instead thinks he's just John reincarnate. And then even later on in, in verse 52, as you look at the, uh, the 12 apostles, even they seem to have unbelief in Christ. But nevertheless, the chapter ends in verses 53 through 56 with this triumphant faith as well. But this morning I want us to to think about this idea of unbelief as we look at verses 1 through 6 of Mark chapter 6. And, and our passage really opens with Jesus traveling. He's traveling from Capernaum, which is in the northern side of the Sea of Galilee, and he travels about 20 miles southwest to this little town called Nazareth, which is his hometown. Okay, Now, it's not the town that he was born in. We know he was born in Bethlehem. But it's the town he grew up in, that he has been there since a, a young age. Now, and and uh, as you think about Nazareth, it's not really much to speak of. It's sort of a one-horse town. And I think as Kansans, we ought to understand small towns, right? I mean, uh, I'm from Indiana, and I thought I understood small towns because I grew up in the country, not too far from a small town. And then I went to western Kansas, and I learned what small towns really are. Okay, sort of redefined how I think of small towns. And, and Nazareth was sort of one of those kinds of towns, sort of a small town. As a matter of fact, just to tell you how small it was and insignificant it was, it did not have a Christian church in it until the 4th century during the reign of Constantine. Okay, now you say, okay, what does that have to do with anything? Well, think about it, okay? As a church planter, I think about these things. You know, where do we plant churches? Usually we plant churches in large metropolitan areas. And it's not until we've sort of, you know, planted churches in all these areas that we begin to plant churches in smaller towns. Now, this is sort of a parenthesis and something for a later time. But part of the vision of Kirk of the Plains is to plant churches that are accessible to small towns. But we can talk about that later. But typically that's not what happens. And so this tells you how small and insignificant this town was that they didn't even have a Christian church until much, much, much later. The town itself was, had a population of less than 500 people, and it was 
the whole town covered about 60 acres from what I understand. So it was very small. And of course, if you've been from a small town, you know that Jesus knew everybody probably. And everybody knew Jesus, right? Uh, but even as insignificant as this was, J.C. Ryle makes a good point. He, said, he points out that he said, Never had any place on earth had such privileges as Nazareth. Now think about it. Because for 30 years, the Son of God lived in this small, insignificant town, and He went to and fro in the streets. For 30 years, He walked with God before the eyes of these citizens, living blameless in a perfect life. But unfortunately, all of that was lost upon these people. They were not ready to believe the gospel. Even when the Lord came to them and he preached and taught them in their synagogue. Now, this is not the first time that Jesus has, has come to Nazareth and preached. In Luke chapter 4, uh, there's an account of Christ coming in. And I really believe that was a separate time, a separate account. And he came and he, he preached from the book of Isaiah. And it seemed like things were going well until Jesus began to apply the sermon to the people that were there and basically said to them, you know, you people are just like the people in Isaiah's day, which was not a compliment by any stretch of the imagination. And so Luke describes it this way. It says, all in the synagogue were filled with wrath. I love that. It's not just they were angry. They were filled with wrath. They were furious at Jesus. And they jerked him out and they dragged him out to the edge of the, the, the city, uh, which was on a hill, by the way. And they were going to throw him over the edge. But... Luke tells us, of course, that passing through their midst, he went away. So that was the attitude of Nazareth toward Jesus in that day. And unfortunately, as we come to our account today, things haven't changed a whole lot. So I want us this morning, as we look at this passage, to consider several things about unbelief. Okay, first of all, I want us to see that unbelief obscures the obvious. It obscures the obvious. It, it ignores what is most obvious? Uh, look at verse 2. You know, Jesus and his disciples arrive at Nazareth, and we read in verse 2, On the Sabbath he began to teach in the synagogue, and many who heard him were astonished. Now, that's not an, uh, uh, an untypical response towards Jesus, right? When people see what Jesus did, when they hear him teach, you know, you think about the people, they're like, wow, his teaching is incredible. He actually teaches as somebody who has authority. He doesn't preach, you know, he doesn't teach like, you know, the preachers in our day, like the Pharisees and stuff. He actually comes as one who has authority. And of course, when people see his miracles and the signs he does, there is just nothing but astonishment. Now, the difference is that the citizens of Nazareth were skeptical of Jesus. Okay, in their astonishment. And we'll see that as we work our way through this text. It sort of explains that. But, you know, they, they see that he has great wisdom. They acknowledge that. They, they, they know that he has done many miracles. They, they probably have either maybe been in the, uh, the sea region and seen him do those miracles. Or at least they've heard about it because it's only about 20 miles from there to the Sea of Galilee. And so they, they've heard this. But they really want to know, where did he get these abilities? You know, by what authority does he do these things? They're, they're questioning Jesus. And not in a way that they really want to know the answer. 
Now, as they ask, where did he get these abilities? There's really only one sensible answer to where, he, where these things came from, and that is from God. Now, let me explain if I could. You know, God has given to his prophets, his messengers, his, his apostles, others, the ability to do miracles in order to prove that their message is from God. I mean, think about that. What if I show up one day and I say, hey, God sent me, and here's his message. And of course, you're sitting here going, okay, how do I know you're from God? Now, now, today, we have the word of God bound in a book. And we know that if it's, in, if it's not in here, it's not what God has said. We know that for the case. The, the canon is closed. But in Jesus' day, there were preachers all the time that were showing up. And, and it was hard for people to know. And so God would give his prophets the ability to do signs and wonders. And we know Jesus came performing many signs and wonders. As a matter of fact, in John chapter 11, verse 47... Uh, we read that the chief priests and the Pharisees gathered the council and they said, what are we to do? For this man performs many signs. And then they go on to talk about how they were afraid that the people were going to all go after him and follow him because they would look at this and they would see this and they would think, it's, you know, it's obvious that he has divine power, but it's obvious that he taught divine truth. And, and this was uh, recognized that Christ was uh, coming with God's blessing, if you want to put it that way. Uh, even Peter, in his sermon in, in the book of Acts, on the day of Pentecost, he said in Acts 2.22, he said, Men of Israel, hear these words. Jesus of Nazareth, a man attested or authenticated to you by God with mighty works and wonders and signs that God did through him in your midst, as you yourselves know. And so it's very clear from Jesus' teaching and miracles that he was the Messiah King. He was something special. But you see, what happens when you have unbelief is unbelief obscures the obvious. It, it ignores it. It sort of muddies it. It begins to question it. And, and though these people in Nazareth couldn't deny the premise of Jesus' wisdom and power, they would not admit that what Jesus did was from God. Now, I don't know for certain, the text doesn't tell us, but I do wonder, as they think about Jesus and the authority, and, and by what authority he does these things, if maybe the people of Nazareth was sort of thinking like the Pharisees. That they were like, you know, maybe the Pharisees got this right. You know, that it's by the prince of demons, it's by the devil that he cast out demons. I, I, we don't know. But regardless, the people could not accept Jesus' claim that he is who he said he is. So, first of all, unbelief obscures the obvious, but also unbelief elevates the irrelevant. It elevates or exalts that which is irrelevant. Uh, the people couldn't accept Jesus' claim that he was who he said he was, so they began to throw up obstacles to the possibility that Jesus is the Messiah, the Son of God. Uh, and they had to throw up obstacles but because they, they couldn't address the facts. I mean, they couldn't possibly focus or discuss his power or the profoundness of his wisdom because surely they couldn't win that argument so uh, they had already rejected him wholesale and so now what they needed to do was they needed to throw up obstacles that, that, that sort of attacked Jesus and that's what we see in verse 3 is not this the carpenter the son of Mary 
and brother of James, and Joses, and Judas, and Simon, and are not his sisters here with us? In other words, look, he comes from a local well-known family of very common people. So to imagine that he is the Messiah, that just doesn't make sense. Besides, even his own family thinks he's nuts. You remember back to chapter 3, verse 21, his family came to get Jesus because what? They thought he was out of his mind. And so the people may have thought, well, that's true. You know, I mean, he comes from an obscure town, an obscure family. He can't possibly be the one who is the Messiah that would come. We know him. We know him. He can't be the Messiah. Besides that, he's a carpenter. I mean, here Jesus is, and he's going into the temple, or excuse me, into the synagogue, and he's teaching like the rabbis, but the reality is he hasn't had any seminary training. He hasn't sat under any rabbis and been taught by them. I mean, what does a mere carpenter know about oratory, and particularly about prophetic interpretation and fulfillment? You just can't trust this guy. I mean, he's just a carpenter. That's the training he's had that his dad gave to him. Uh, yeah, okay. So he may have disciples who follow him, and, but, and he's fooled them. But we know better. We know that he's just a carpenter. And so we're not going to be fooled by that. So they raise that objection. But then they also call him the son of Mary. Now, there are some who think that uh, this refers to the fact that Joseph has died. And, and I would guess that by then, that's exactly what had happened. Joseph had died. I mean, because even earlier on, we see how Jesus and his siblings came to get to came to the house where he was and uh, to get him, but they couldn't get through. So I'm guessing probably Joseph was dead. But in many ways, that's sort of insignificant because uh, a, a young man would never be referred to uh, in relation to his mother, but always in re referred to as the son of his father. And, and even if the father was dead, we see examples of that in Scripture, that they still are referred to him according to his father. So it's very possible that what the people were saying when they were saying he's the son of Mary is they were really slandering Jesus for what they've come to believe is an illegitimate birth. Here's a woman who was betrothed to this young man, and guess what? She's found to be pregnant out of wedlock. And so, you know, that's where Jesus comes from. Now, do me a favor and turn to John chapter 8. John chapter 8, verse uh, 41. And this is a, a discussion, a discourse between Jesus and the religious leaders. And Jesus says in, in John 8, 41, the first part of the verse, And you are doing the works your father did. You see, the, the religious leaders were boasting about the fact that they were children of Abraham. Okay, they were Abraham's descendants. In other words, they were somebody. Okay, but Jesus says, based on your actions, your father is not Abraham. But if you look at verse 44, your father is the devil. Okay, and so Jesus is charging them with being spiritually illegitimate children of Abraham. And this is what the religious leaders say saying in response to Jesus at the end of verse 41. They said to him, We were not born of sexual immorality. We have one Father, even God. Okay, so it's not impossible. I don't want to make too much of this point, but 
It's not impossible that the Jews and their reply were alluding to the irregularities connected with Jesus' birth. That they were saying, you know, we're not born out of sexual immorality. Maybe like some people who are talking to us, sort of like the pot calling the kettle black, you know, or, or who are you to have room to talk about us when you look at your past. It could be that that's what they were referring to. But I really do think that as these Nazarite people were talking uh, to Jesus, that they were insinuating that Jesus is illegitimate, at least that his birth was. And so how could he be the Messiah? How could he be the promised one with such a past? And so they're attempting to validate their hostility and, and they seek to belittle him and, and cast doubt in the minds of people against him. And so these are uh, very slanderous things that they are speaking against him. Uh, but they are irrelevant in light of the truth, if you think about it. Okay? The people were looking at all these things from a naturalistic point of view. In other words, a view without God. But when you put God into the mix, all of a sudden, it changes everything. Uh, a carpenter. Okay, yes, he was a carpenter. But he was also the Word made flesh. And guess what? The Word made flesh doesn't have to go to seminary to get training, right? You know, he knows it. He is the Word of God. And so he doesn't have to go and to study that. Or even the son of Mary... You know, uh, such a, a thing uh, makes sense only in the minds of the people that she had to have an affair with some other man. It's the only way she could get pregnant. But we see as, as God enters the picture, God tells us that it actually was by the Holy Spirit that she came to conceive Jesus. And, and even his family that is there. Yes, he is God. And so how could he have a family? You know, we know this family. But the reality is he is the God-man. God, yet a man who could be part of a human family. And so unbelief obscures the obvious and it exalts the irrelevant, but it also assaults the messenger as well. Look at the last part of verse 3, okay? The last phrase of verse 3 gives us really the unvarnished truth about the nature of the astonishment in Jesus' ministry. Their astonishment was not like, wow, that's so cool, but it was really more of a disdain for Jesus. It says that they took offense at him. Uh, the Greek word is scandalizo, okay? Scandalizo. And it carries over into the English. They were scandalized by Jesus. They were profoundly offended. They didn't want any identification with Jesus because they were embarrassed by him. They were ashamed of him. In their minds, it was an absolute blasphemy that, they, that he would claim to be the Son of God. Now, that's the same word that is used in 1 Corinthians chapter 1, where the gospel is called a stumbling block or a scandalon to the Jews. And so Jesus was that stumbling block to them. Now, repeatedly, the scriptures talks about how they stumbled over the reality of Jesus Christ and the gospel. And this is an adamant antagonism towards Jesus that they have. They took offense at him. And this is the attitude of an unbeliever when pressed with the truth. When the truth is obvious and the truth is relevant, he tries to obscure the obvious and elevate the irrelevant and then turn on the messenger. 
Now, this is important for us to understand. When that happens, oftentimes there is an attack on the messenger. And, and many of us have experienced that. At least some of us probably have experienced being attacked because of Christ and the gospel. Now, you know, maybe not physically attacked. Maybe it's been a verbal thing. Maybe it's been people's attitudes towards you. So maybe it's been sort of more of a toned down thing than if you're in Afghanistan or something. But still people attack. And that's one of the ploys that unbelief uses. It assaults the messenger. He uses an ad hominem attack. I wish this was Sunday school because I'd like to ask the young people what's an ad hominem, okay? And I'm sure there's somebody in here who can tell me that. But I'll tell you, since it's not Sunday school and I can't get responses, okay? It's really sort of appealing to feelings, okay? Or to prejudices rather than dealing with the intellectual arguments that, that are before you, okay? And so they use that ad hominem. It will try to diminish the person who is proclaiming the truth by attacking them because they can't really argue with the truth that's happening. Well, Jesus, uh, as we'll see next week, is preparing to send out his 12 uh, to go and to preach the gospel. And, and if you look at Mark's or Matthew's account, turn over to Matthew chapter 10. This is Matthew's account of, of, of this account from Mark where Jesus is getting ready to send out the ten. It's a little bit more elaborated, and this is what Jesus tells his disciples as they're getting ready to go out. He goes, Behold, I am sending you out as sheep in the midst of wolves. So be wise as serpents and innocent as doves. Beware of men, for they will deliver you over to courts and flog you in their synagogues, and you will be dragged before governors and kings for my sake to bear witness before them and the Gentiles. And when they deliver you over, do not be anxious how you are to speak or what you are to say. For what you are to say will be given to you in that hour. For it is to speak, but the Spirit of the Father speaking through you. <coughs> Brothers and sisters, uh, we should expect this. That we will be attacked as the messengers of the gospel of Jesus Christ. And that's what some unbelievers do. They will ridicule. And they will disdain or so as believers have been put to death simply because they believe in Jesus Christ. Because that is oftentimes the response of unbelief to the truth. But brothers and sisters, there's comfort for us in this. As we go through these things, as we experience these kind of things, there's comfort for true Christians who stand alone in their families. Maybe no one else in your family is a Christian. Maybe you're the only one. All the rest are standing with the world. They're denying the Lord Jesus Christ. And let us remember that we are drinking the same cup as our beloved Master. Let us remember that He too was despised most by those who knew Him best. Let us learn that the utmost consistency of our conduct, I don't care how consistent we are, it will not necessarily make others see the truth and come to our views and opinions any more than it did the people of Nazareth when Jesus came and preached the gospel. And so there's comfort there for the believer. But there's also a challenge for us too as well. Does Jesus serve as the scandalizo for you? Is he the scandal for you? Uh, are, are you embarrassed by Jesus? 
Are you a secret service Christian? You don't want anyone to know you are identified with Jesus Christ because being identified with Him is a real embarrassment and it's shameful. Oh, brothers and sisters, let that not be the case that Christ is a scandal for us. Well, then if you go on and look at verse 4, Jesus states a, a well-known quote, and Jesus said to them, A prophet is not without honor except in his hometown and among his relatives and in his own household. Now, Jesus is not saying that a prophet is respected everywhere except in his hometown or with his uh, relatives or in his family. What he's saying is, is that wherever a prophet would be honored, it's certainly not in his hometown or with his family. And, and, and uh, so he, he sort of describes the situation he's in. Now, we would use a different phrase. We, we say that familiarity breeds contempt. Uh, the fact that the people of Nazareth were so well acquainted with Jesus' family, having known them for so long, it, it caused them to look down upon Jesus. They were familiar with him, and so it breeded contempt. And it's interesting that not only does the town people doubt Jesus, but also, I don't know if you think realize this or not, but Jesus, there was at least nine kids in Jesus' family, maybe ten, or maybe more, but that's how many we see listed in Scripture. Okay, So he comes from a fairly large family, and none of his brothers and sisters were Christians. If Joseph was dead at this point in time, then Mary would have been the only believer in him. Now, we do know that later on, there were a couple of siblings that did come to faith in Jesus Christ after Jesus was crucified and, and resurrected. But at this time, even his family uh, denied him. And so we see the, the unbelief. The unbelief that obscures the obvious. It also elevates the irrelevant, ignoring the facts. But it also uh, uh, attacks the messenger. And finally, we see that unbelief has consequences in verses 5 and 6. And he could do no mighty work there except that he laid his hands on a few sick people and healed them. Now, think about that, brothers and sisters. That's sobering. That's a sobering phrase. He could not, he could do no mighty work there. Now, Mark doesn't mean that somehow the people of Nazareth had blocked the power of Jesus from working by their unbelief, that their unbelief robbed him of what capacity he had to do in other parts of the world. And so if it's not that, then what exactly is going on here? Well, to answer that, I think we've got to think about the purpose of miracles. To, sh um, to show that the truth you're sharing is from God. That's the purpose of miracles, to show that the truth you're sharing is from God. And if that's true, and you have rejected that truth, then what place is there, what need is there to do miracles? Because there's already unbelief there. In Mark chapter 4, um, if you want to flip back there, Mark 4, that's the uh, chapter that talks about the parable of the sower and the seed. And after Jesus gives that parable, then he says in verse 24, he says, and he said to them, pay attention to what you hear. In other words, you know, if, if it's only on the good soil that, that the seed takes root, then pay attention to listen. Okay? Pay attention to what you hear. With the measure you use, it will be measured to you, and still more will be added to you. For to the one who has, more will be given. Okay? 
So from the one who has, more will be given. As you get that word, it will take root in your heart and it will bear a harvest, right? 30, 60, 100 fold. Okay, but then he goes on and he says, even, oh, it says, and from the one who has not, even what he has will be taken away. And that's what we see here in Nazareth. That where that unbelief is, what even what they have has been taken away. You see, Christ's lack of performing miracles is the judgment of God on this town of Nazareth. God withholds his power for the most part from the stiff-necked people who held Jesus in contempt. Now it's interesting that they were astonished at his teaching and took offense at him. But if you look at the end of verse 6, it says, And he marveled, or he was astonished, because of their unbelief. The townspeople took offense at Jesus, and Jesus is astonished at their unbelief. And he would not bless them as a result of that. They, they have had ample opportunity, abundant evidence for faith in him. They have no excuse to believe in him. They grew up around him. They're familiar with this story. And still they persist in their unbelief. And Jesus is amazed. Brothers and sisters, I, I want us to think about this this morning. And just as I close, I, I just sort of want to apply this to maybe a number of people that may be listening today. Different types of people. Maybe some of you are listening and you know all about Jesus. You know all about the gospel. You're familiar and comfortable with Christian things, but you don't know Jesus. At least not personally and not intimately and not really and not savingly. It's, it's sort of the superficial. Your relationship with Jesus is sort of superficial. It's sort of skin deep. It's only on the outside. You know, you've, you've heard the gospel, the good news about Jesus over and over. And you can probably even give a gospel presentation. And you've been urged to trust in Christ. You've been shown the wonder of His love at the cross. You've been warned about the horrors of sin and the judgment to come. And yet, you still are not concerned. No wonder Jesus was astonished. It's astonishing after hearing all this that we carry glibly on in a path of willful rebellion against him. There's really no excuse for unbelief. You have no right to you have no right not to believe in Jesus. And what a tragedy it is when we persist in that. But Jesus is calling you today to believe, to come to him and to trust him. But there may be those listening today who have never claimed to know Jesus. As a matter of fact, all this Religious stuff seems to be silly to them. It sort of reminds me of an article by uh, an MIT professor, Rosalind Picard, in which she describes uh, being challenged. Uh, she was a scientist and an MIT professor. And she was challenged to read the Bible for herself and to honestly consider for herself the claims of Jesus Christ. And listen to what she said about that challenge. She said, more than anything, she said, I wanted to get past this religion phase because I knew I didn't want religion. I resented what, I fe what felt like an unwelcome ultimatum. I didn't want to believe in God, but I still felt the peculiar sense of love and presence I couldn't ignore. I knew Jesus claimed to be the way to God, but I had been trying to avoid anything Jesus related. I couldn't help hearing his name 
with the word freak attached. And so here's this scientifically minded person who is, is struggling. Uh, but notice what their struggle is. Their, their struggle is not about the intellectual facts about who Jesus Christ is. It's, it's not that it's not credible to believe. She just did not want to believe. Now this is her confession. She eventually actually became a Christian. And looking back in those days, this is what she said as she reflected on this. She goes, I once thought I was too smart to believe in God. Now I know I was an arrogant fool who snubbed the greatest mind in the cosmos, the author of all science, mathematics, art, and everything else there is to know. If you are listening this morning and you find yourself keeping Jesus at arm's length, then maybe it's because you're rejecting it, your, his claims. Maybe, though, that really has little to do with an honest intellectual inquiry about who he is. And maybe it has much more to do with the scary thought that following Jesus means you'll no longer be in control. It will mean losing freedom and surrendering yourself. But here's what Rosalind Picard, the MIT professor as well, uh, eventually found out and what the people in Nazareth missed altogether, that namely if Jesus really is who he says he is, then rejecting him isn't freedom, it's foolishness. Rejecting Jesus is not freedom, it's foolishness. It's actually the great evidence that you already live in terrible spiritual blindness in bondage. You're a slave right now. And Mark wants us to see the sin, the sin of unbelief. But as you listen this morning, I want you to understand that the anonymous woman in the previous chapter who had been bleeding for 12 years, she found mercy in Jesus Christ. Jairus, this, this prominent religious leader, this ruler of the synagogue, he found mercy in Jesus Christ. This man, this demoniac who is full of demons and under the bondage of Satan for who knows how long, he found mercy in Jesus Christ and was set free. But there will be no mercy for you from Jesus if you will not come to him and place your faith in him. He could do no mighty work there. He's, he's willing and able, but if you persist any longer in your unbelief, he will be constrained by his righteousness to withhold from you what you most urgently need. And what a tragedy, brothers and sisters, that would be. So stop messing around with Christianity on the sideline. It's time to sort of get off the fence. Don't let familiarity breed contempt, but come to Jesus humbly. Come to Jesus urgently, confessing your sins and your guilt and begging him for your pardon. Come to Jesus, trusting Him to rescue you. But come to Jesus and abandon your, sin, your, your cynicism. Admit that you don't come because the reality is you don't want to come. You, you don't want to believe. Just, just admit that. It's not that you don't come to Jesus because of some straw man arguments that you've raised or some objections that you've been holding on for years. It's really rebellion all along the way that has kept you from coming to him and so give it up and come to Jesus because while the Nazarenes missed it countless others 
found the mercy they need in Him, and you can too. But finally, I want to talk to those of you today, this morning, who are Christians. You're walking with the Lord. You're seeing your faith grow. You love the Lord Jesus Christ. There's no question about that. But I want us to take to heart, as we think about that, the words of J.C. Ryle. As he was reflecting on this passage, he said this. He goes, let us watch our own hearts carefully in the matter of unbelief. He's talking to Christians here. He's talking to you and I. He goes, it's not a lack of evidence or the difficulty of Christian doctrine that make people unbelievers. It is a refusal to believe and trust Jesus completely. It is the rebellion of their heart. And as Christians, we can still struggle with such rebellion to submit ourselves completely to Jesus. We can love our sin too much, brothers and sisters. We can be entangled in the ways of the world. And, and I know when we say that, that's sort of a nebulous thing, and it could be all kinds of things. It could be you're driven by money, or you want reputation, or you're seeking materialism. I mean, how do you define that, Pastor Rick? Well, it can be those things, but it can be simple things as well. And John Piper points that out. He goes, impatience is a form of unbelief. Now think about that. Especially if you're an impatient person, right? Impatience is a form of unbelief. It's what we begin to feel when we start to doubt the wisdom of God's timing or the goodness of His guidance. It springs up in our hearts when the road to success gets muddied or strewn with boulders or blocked by some fallen tree. The battle with impatience can be a little skirmish over a long wait in the checkout line, or it can be a major combat over a handicap or disease or some other circumstance that goes on in our life for years and years and years. And when we struggle with those things, it seems like we never run out of reasons to justify our behavior. But brothers and sisters, the humble childlike heart is the heart that believes in God. And so let us go on watching our hearts even after we have believed that the root of unbelief um, is always there. It's always there. It's never entirely destroyed. And we have to do, and, and all we have to do is neglect watch, watching and praying and a fertile crop of unbelief will soon spring up. No prayer is so important to us as Christians is the prayer that the disciples prayed where they said, Lord, increase our faith. And so let us come to Jesus this morning, forsaking our unbelief and instead trusting in Him, living in light of His promises and forsaking our heart of rebellion. Please bow with me if you would and reflect upon this this morning.
Father and our God. We pray this morning that as, as we consider this passage, that we would learn from these Nazarite people. Lord forbid that, that any of us should ever be offended by our Lord, that we should ever distance ourselves from the glory of God, that we might be ever embarrassed by the radiance of his beauty. Oh Lord, work in our hearts to know you, to love you, to walk in faith. Preserve us, O oh Christ, as your people, by your Holy Spirit. It is in your name we pray these things. Amen.